Leading Ideas Talks podcast is brought to you by the Lewis Center for Church Leadership of Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. Subscribe free to our weekly e-newsletter, Leading Ideas, at churchleadership.com slash leadingideas. Leading Ideas Talks is also brought to you by Developing Your Operating Budget. This video toolkit helps you understand what an operating budget is, different ways that churches create their annual operating budgets, and five common budgeting models. No matter your church size, this resource will help you build a better church budget. Learn more and watch introductory videos at churchleadership.com shop. And remember, to stay up to date with the latest church leadership strategies and information, please like and subscribe to this channel and click the bell icon to get updates for new videos. Is your congregation too dependent on Sunday morning offerings? In this episode, Grace Pomroy from Luther Seminary shares research findings on congregations that are developing new and creative funding sources, not only to bolster the bottom line, but to better connect with neighbors and advance their missions. I'm Ann Michael. I'm a senior consultant with the Lewis Center for Church Leadership of Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. I'm also one of the editors of Leading Ideas e-newsletter, and I'm so pleased to be the host for this episode of Leading Ideas Talks podcast. My guest today is Grace Pomeroy, who since 2020 has served as the director of the Stewardship Leaders Program at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. In that capacity, she has directed a research initiative called Funding Forward, which is aimed at learning about more sustainable funding models for congregations that move beyond a reliance on Sunday morning offerings. Uh, the research team identified about 200 congregations in the U.S. and Canada who were experimenting with more sustainable financial models, and then took a look at what they were doing and what we can learn from their experiences. Uh, and this is such a critical subject, Grace. Uh, um, thank you for agreeing to share with us and with your, our listeners. Absolutely. It's my pleasure, Anne. I listen to this podcast, so it's a pleasure to be on it as well. Oh, thank you for that. So the congregations that you studied had developed a number of different kinds of funding sources, and I think it will help our listeners get a sense of what this is all about if we begin by having you name uh, some of the alternate revenue streams that some of these congregations have developed and which are most common and significant. Absolutely. So I would think about this as kind of a collage. There were so many different ideas that came to the table. And oftentimes when I talk to congregations, they want me to give them just one. And in fact, I feel like I need to give you the whole Jackson Pollock portrait so you can focus on what seems mm -hmm. best for your congregation and where God is leading you. So a couple of different pieces of the portrait that I'd bring to life. One is property. Property is a big component for many congregations. So renting church property was the highest on the list for the congregations that we studied. Sale of church property was also on that list as well. But there were other things like starting a business, like a social enterprise. There were things like securing grants, repurposing endowment funds, maybe joining an impact investment might be part of that puzzle. There were a variety of different ways that congregations engaged in this work, which was really exciting to see. Mm -hmm. So some of the things that you just named may not be 
as familiar as others to people. So for example, when you talk about a social enterprise or a self-sustaining ministry, or you said an impact? An impact investment. Impact investment. Could you describe um, those categories? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give a brief definition and then maybe a quick example as well. So it feels a little more grounded. So a social enterprise, let's begin. A social enterprise is a business for good. Um, so this can come in a nonprofit format. It can come in a for-profit format. Oftentimes outside of congregation, social enterprises are thought about in a for-profit business model format. But this can be something as small as selling products or services that has a business model in your congregation, or it could be something as large as a business that's separate from a congregation. So for instance, one of the congregations we studied started a farm um, that sells bread and sells produce and gives away some of that bread and produce to the community as well. So that's an example of social enterprise. I know of a campus ministry that started a pay-as-you-go deli um, during the pandemic on their campus because that was a needed resource for students. Um, so it really can come in a variety of forms and can be something as small. Um, even when you think about things like a church bake sale, that's kind of a baby form of a social enterprise and that it often has a good at the end of it, but it's not necessarily a defined business structure. Usually social enterprises will, will have their own defined business structure around that, whether for profit or nonprofit. And an impact investment, for instance, is a way of investing in a specific ministry or project that isn't a donation. You're actually putting money in, mm -hmm. so some principal in, with the goal of getting a return, a return that's not only financial, but also is social impact oriented. So for instance, a ministry that I know of, it happens to be a campus ministry in Madison, Wisconsin, was trying to build student apartments. And when they were building these student apartments, they wanted to find a loan that would allow them to do that work and not have to pay back as much interest. So they actually went to their regional uh, church body and asked them to make an impact investment in this property so that they would be able to pay back on different types of terms. So that's an example of an impact investment. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned grants, and I know that, um, you know, um, congregations oftentimes might get a grant from their denomination, but you really found that there were lots of other kinds of grants that might be accessible to congregations. So could you say a word more about that? Absolutely. So I often find that congregations assume that because they are a religious entity, that there are no outside grants available to them. And I, I have to admit, I went into this work thinking the same thing, that they would really be limited to um, faith-based granting bodies, uh, faith-based foundations, to um, regional uh, church bodies and denominations. But in fact, what we found is that there were other bodies outside of it that really valued that church's work. So for instance, a church that's doing affordable housing, a church that's starting a business that meets a need in the community, these granting bodies wanted to be a part of it. Sometimes in order to be eligible for these grants, they did need to separate out that part of the church's mm -hmm. life into its own business entity. But what I found is more and more the case, they didn't need to make that separation as long as they could make a business case for why that mattered to the individual granting organization. Yeah, that's really good to hear because I think a lot of people do assume that unless you create a different separate 501c3, there aren't going to be that many uh, available sources of grant funds. So that's, that's really encouraging. Um, you know, in addition to learning about the different kinds of revenue sources um, that congregations have been availing themselves of, I think you also learned a great deal about 
um, what makes these different kind of approaches successful. Uh, so I wondered if you could share some of the key practices and perspectives that are important when congregations are moving into this kind of funding forward approach. Absolutely. So I would say that a lot of congregations that I interact with on a daily or weekly basis often come to me in this conversation because let's be honest, they are running low on funds and necessity has been the reason why they needed to get involved in this conversation. And I understand that. But what we found is that most of the congregations who had success in this area didn't just come to this journey for financial reasons. They actually used this um, financial incident where they were running out of funds or they thought they might soon be running out of funds as a catalyst to begin a larger conversation about what God might be calling them to do. Mm -hmm. So this was never solely financial motivated. There was usually a biblical, theological, missional motivation that came behind it. So as we looked at the 12 congregations we had a chance to really sit down with an interview. We found a couple of things coming together that really kind of sparked their success, if you want to think that in um, financial as well as kind of missional impact terms. And one component of that was having a clear sense of what God was calling them to do and to be, God's mission. What was God's mm -hmm. mission for their particular congregation? How were they invited to join God's mission in their community? The other clear component they often had was community need. What were the needs in their community? What were the hopes in their community? And what assets did their community have that made it unique? And then the last piece of the puzzle that really motivated them to be able to spring forward was having an underutilized asset. Now, I realize people listening to this podcast, the first thing they're going to go to is property. And for many congregations, it was property as an underutilized asset. However, for some, it was something a little different. Um, one congregation in particular, it was some gifts and skills that the staff had that were untapped. Mm -hmm. So for mm -hmm. instance, a staff member who was a baker, a staff member who was a farmer, that was something they could use, or they had people in their community who were really handy with tools. So they knew that they could do something with the building because they had a whole group of people who could make the building rentable. So it's not just property, but property could certainly be a piece of that puzzle. And those three things coming together really allowed congregations to make a broader impact in their community and to deepen their faith through this process as well. It was not just a financial journey. Yeah, that really relates to my my next question. And, and that is that, um, you know, I think in addition to the financial advantages of this, you also found that there were some other advantages to congregations that took these took on these initiatives. Uh, and so I wondered if you could name some of those. Absolutely. This was the most eye-opening and fun part of the study for me. I Honestly, I'm a financial gal. I do financial <laughs> wellness. I like a church budget. That's where I live. I have a seminary education, but I know there are better people out there to do theology. And I was amazed at how much this came up in our work. So one area where we saw this was on the survey. We invited everyone who talked about a new income source, as we've talked about already in this podcast, to let us know if they had any evidence that this particular income source allowed them to create meaningful relationships with people outside of the congregation that they might not be able to meet otherwise. To be honest, we included this. We had no idea what type of data we would get from it and became one of the most prominent pieces of data from our survey because we found that across all of the different income sources that we looked at, in almost every case but one, 
over 50% of the congregations who had used that income source said they were creating relationships. And this was not just a one-off or a two-off situation. In most cases, this was opening a whole nother door to people in their community that they would not meet otherwise. I think about one of the congregations we looked at um, has a farmer's market stand where they sell soup. And this has been an amazing outlet for relationships for them because they see the same people coming back every week to the farmer's market. They have created relationships with these farmers in their community who have helped them to form this soup. And then they get to sell that to these customers who they are also getting to know about their lives and create relationships at the stand. And then their goal is that you actually not only take the soup for yourself, but you give it away to someone else. So the relationships just keep rippling out from there. Others have said that formerly they felt like they were a black box in their neighborhood, that no one knew who they were. And yet starting these different income source revenue sources actually has opened the door to create relationships in ways that they had never considered before, so much so that the community now sees them as an essential part of the fabric of that neighborhood. Yeah, that, that's just so amazing. I think that's so true when churches have to look outside themselves and think about, you know, making connections, the, the, the evangelism opportunities, the outreach opportunities, the relational things that can come about. And, and this is really significant. I think you also found that there was a spiritual dimension to this work, too. You've already mentioned the, the deep connection, the mission. And I, I mean, that's one of my mantras in stewardship ministry, that stewardship really is about mission. Uh, but 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 um, where else? do you see God in this? Absolutely. And I just want to tag on to one piece and then I will get to where I see God in this because it's so great. I often find that congregations at the beginning of this process will say to me, Grace, will this guarantee that I get more butts and seats and more money through the offering plate? I love that it's creating relationships, but I want it to create transactional relationships. If we're going to put a fine point on it, where people are coming to my congregation. And what we found, particularly from the interview sites, just wanted to clarify this for folks, was that often the people they were serving through these other income source outlets, whether they were renting out space in their building, participating in a social enterprise, or were a grantor or a grantee in a, in a program that they had, those were generally not the people who were coming to the congregation. However, as word has gotten out in the community about what this church is doing, that has attracted people who may not have gone to church otherwise who say, wow, I want to be a part of a church where that is seen as part of our ministry. So that's where people have seen some of the expansiveness of those relationships blossoming, leading to evangelism moments in their community. But it's not usually a one-for-one -one transaction. I see God in so many places in this work, but I have to say it's the congregations that have taught me where God is in this work. We put a question of where do you see God in this process, whether you were adding an income source, you were reducing uh, your congregation's budget, or you're creating a self-sustaining ministry. And it was at the very end of a very long survey. Our survey was, depending on how many income sources you were using, this, this could have taken you 20, 30 minutes to complete. And we were really worried that survey fatigue would get in the way. But I was amazed to see of the 101 people who participated in this survey, we had over 90 viable responses to this last question. And I sat down uh, Christmas of 2022 to read through this data, and I wept at the stories that I saw. 
This was not just, oh, God is everywhere. We see God in all places. I think we have one of those answers. But for the most part, it was deep experiences of where God was showing up for them yeah. in big miracles and small miracles that they were finding, but also in the peace and the resilience that they were experiencing through this work that they knew was only the Holy Spirit's at work. I was amazed. And honestly, it has transformed my faith journey to see the ways that faith and finances are coming together through the funding forward process that people were participating in. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that testimony. I, I do often see testimonies of faith uh, come through as people talk about this journey that they take, you know, that you think is about dollars and cents, but it's really, as you've said, so much about the mission of the church and, and where God is leading us. So thank you for that. So I wanted to ask you a question um, that's that's not in your research, but I, but I, I wonder whether you have a sense of this. Um, I, I wondered what your sense is of how significant some of these trends are church-wide. I, I mean, you admittedly were studying churches that were, were trailblazers. Um, and for a lot of us who are looking at developments in church stewardship and finance, I think we have all been paying attention to certain leading churches that have been um, working in this space. And I think I, I've sort of become so captivated with some of this that um, I was really frankly surprised a couple of years ago when the Lake Institute study of congregations economic practices came out. Um, and at that time, it was four years ago, they found that 40% um, of congregations still didn't have any source of revenue beyond contributions. And then looking in aggregate, that it's like 90% of church, church revenue, money coming into churches, is coming from donations or kind of more standard fundraising practices. And rentals and other property was only like about 6%. And so I... I I wondered whether you think this trend toward alternate funding sources is accelerating and what that growth might look like. Absolutely. I would definitely say that it's accelerating. I also lean into that uh, Lake Institute study. And it's amazing to me, particularly prior to the pandemic, when that study was done, mm -hmm. how much revenue was coming in from the offering plate. And most of yeah. that happening on Sunday morning through right. physical <laughs> transactions. I mean, yeah. it was quite shocking. Mm -hmm. And yet, even though we know online giving has exploded because of the pandemic, most congregations who were reticent took that up pretty quickly right. um, once the pandemic <laughs> set in. Pandemic, right? <laughs> exactly. But it's been fascinating to see how, as many for many congregations, not all, uh, the trends in attendance have gone down. Um, that also has led in some congregations to a decline in revenue. It's not a, necessarily a one for one, right. but it's important to note that. But I think even for those congregations that have not seen a decline in revenue, but are seeing a decline in attendance, often that's the case because they've got some usually older donors um, who are going to be soon sadly aging out of the congregation um, who are bringing in significant funds. And when they pass away, it could be a real wake-up call for them. So I often encourage congregations, because this is more missional than financial, let's get into the conversation sooner. There's nothing wrong with adding an additional source of income that allows you that buffer if you run into this situation. Because the reason why we should be doing this work is not just because of finances, but because of God. But as far as whether or not it will be more necessary, Absolutely. I just think especially as many congregations grow smaller, 
it's going to be needed that we think about our the way we manage our money differently. And instead of doing the, quote, death by a thousand cuts that a lot of congregations will do of cutting little things off programs, how can we be more proactive in starting earlier to create some of these programs that might need some startup funds? So we need a little bit of a runway to make this happen. Yeah, in, in Love at Weems, in my book, Generosity, Stewardship, and Abundance, we talk about this under the umbrella of abundance, that this, this is one of the ways that congregations can creatively tap into, you know, all the uh, possibilities that, that, that God has put before us uh, in order to, you know, that there, there, there's, there's a lot of possibility. And when we're only thinking about Sunday morning offerings, we're really limiting, um, we're really limiting our church. Um, a little bit related to the last question, I, I did notice that um, among the congregations that were part of your research, um, a half of them were urban and another quarter are suburban. And, you know, I think it's probably true in your denomination as it is in mine that, in fact, the vast majority of our congregations are small rural congregations. And I, I, I think just along the lines as we were speaking um, a minute ago, um, urban churches tend to have, I think, more options, particularly with regard to their property because of the value of the real estate. Um, but I'm so I'm wondering whether you could share a story, perhaps from a smaller church in your study, a rural church, of, of the possibilities that might exist in that context. Absolutely. I'd be really happy to. And I will just say, as we were putting together that original list of 200, we wanted to have more rural and small congregations. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, the list just didn't lead us in that direction. And when we got our responses, we just had less responses from small and rural congregations. Yeah. Yeah. Which is just so, it's so tough. Um, and that's why oh. we decided to overrepresent them in our interview series mm -hmm. by including even more small and rural. So I, I share two of the stories from them, which I think are really beautiful. Um, so one of the stories is from a small congregation in Gulf Shores, um, Alabama, and they decided, um, they actually got to a point that was really pretty scary. Um, this person had come in as their pastor during the pandemic and realized uh, shortly after they arrived, about six months in, that this congregation had only had two years worth of salary for that pastor. And she was never told about this during the interview process, never told about this. I'm sure many clergy are <laughs> shaking their heads as you hear this story. You've heard urban legends like this before, or maybe you've experienced this. And she's a finance person. She actually um, has some finance background and said, well, we need to make a change here. We need to make a big change. Um, and it can't just be a small thing. We're not going to be here if we don't make a shift. So they decided to take a look at all of the different assets that had been entrusted to them and really to brainstorm and think creatively about that. And the pastor at the same time decided to have some conversations with people in the community to see what the needs were. And they really found two different needs. One was childcare. There was a distinct need for childcare in the community. And one was a need for affordable, rentable office space. And as they were looking at the numbers, they realized that childcare was not necessarily going to be able to help them in their particular instance to fill in their finance gap. Um, just to say, we did have someone in our interview series who did a daycare and has done many daycares and it's been financially viable for them. So don't say you should rule that out entirely. It just wasn't viable for them. However, they looked into affordable office space and found that there was a lot of viability there. So they decided to shift 
most of their building into affordable office space. They rent out one of the staff spaces in their church office. They rent out most of their education wing, their church library, and even have, I believe, parts of their fellowship hall to be able to be used as kind of a conference space. And amazingly, they were able to get all seven, I believe is the number of those spaces rented within a year. So very quickly able to get these spaces rented, mostly because there was a gentleman in the community who was very handy, who was able to bring those spaces up to date, bring them alive. And it's been so exciting to hear their story, to hear how that has really changed the perception of that church in the community, that this is a place that people see as a place where they can work, but also a place where they can worship. Um, it has transformed the space because one of, they have an artist who's renting one of their spaces who asked to put art up on the wall. So now it's become more of the renter's space and the church's space, but also just in talking to the church musician, hearing about how it really enlivens her that when she goes to get coffee as she's going to practice her music for Sunday, like the conversations that happen around the coffee station are so different now that they've got those renters there and it really has allowed the church to come alive. Um, a second story that I would share is from a congregation in New Hampshire um, that's very small, very rural, and they have decided to move to a part-time ministry model. And it has been an incredibly viable experience for them to shift down to 50%, um, but it's they're part of the journey still, um, trying to figure out what does this mean? If we only have a 50% pastor, what else do we need to pick up? What exactly does this look like? So getting to talk to the congregation in the midst of this transition to really focus more on lay leadership um, and see what lay folks in the congregation are willing to pick up and what might need to be left behind moving to 50%. It's been really exciting to see. And I would definitely say that rural congregations can still have space to use their buildings in different yeah. ways. Um, it's just a different experience. So for instance, I've seen many rural congregations, not any we interviewed, who have started to open up their space to medical professionals because that means people won't have to drive mm. as far of a distance. Um, yeah. So there's different types of opportunities, but I agree, very different from an urban and suburban environment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I worked with a, a student, uh, a Wesley Seminary doctoral student, um, not too many years ago, and he was in a congregation that historically had really funded itself through all kinds of fundraising. And the congregation just became so absorbed in one fundraiser after another that it, it, it just really kind of absorbed all their energy. And his goal was to try to get the congregation to really embrace biblical giving <laughs> so that they wouldn't have to spend so much of their time doing fundraising. And so I, I, I think, you know, I, for congregations that are moving toward more creative um, approaches to funding and financial stewardship, I, 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 I guess my question is, how can they still stay focused on what I think is a really core aspect of the church's mission, which is to help congregants learn how to give generously? Oh, and I'm so glad you asked this because this is a passion of mine, as I'm sure you know. So I, I don't want to leave that at the door. So a couple of things that I would say about that. If you go down the path of pursuing different income sources, um, and I hope you'll at least consider it or open your mind to that idea, 
um, it's really important that you're incredibly transparent with the congregation. So for instance, I know of a congregation in a downtown area that rents out its parking lot during the week for people who commute to that downtown area to go to work. And people assume for a long time that they were making exceptional amounts of income from that parking lot space and that all of that income would be able to fund the church. People have legitimate questions about this, and I think it's really mm -hmm. important to know that people will overestimate how much you're making through those income sources, <laughs> and if they don't go to a specific area, um, that can be really tricky. Now, I realize everybody's budget is different, your budget system is different, but if you have a way to direct those funds toward a specific purpose, I would encourage you to do so. So, for instance, with this urban congregation, if I were to go to them, I would say, for that parking lot, I think that revenue should be generated towards the church property. How can we put that towards any renovations that need to happen on that church property? Don't put it towards the most exciting program on your budget. So for instance, if youth ministry is what people are excited about, don't use those funds uh, to fund the youth ministry. You're already going to have enough people who want to fund that. So that piece aside, um, I do think the offering plate is so important. And this frees us to think about the offering in really generative ways. Um, so we can think about generosity on more wavelengths than just financial. So I think about a congregation that I was a part of where we had many entrepreneurs, people who are just starting out in their careers, college students. And when the offering was just one note of give money and that's it. Um, it really didn't resonate with them. So we had different offering stations where people could give money. We had places where people could offer prayers. We had places where people could volunteer. And we had an area where people could interact with the sermon and put that into practice in any way. Um, I love Mark Allen Powell's work where he really focuses on how the offering is an mm -hmm. act of worship right. and giving mm -hmm. is a piece of that. Um, but there are also other things that we are called to give from what God has entrusted to our care. And I think putting these other income sources in place gives us a little bit more freedom to not feel like we are begging for money, but to really help people understand generosity as a spiritual practice and grow right. into that practice, Maybe not out of scarcity or necessity. And, and not just seeing uh, church giving as a way to pay the church's bills, but as truly form of congregational generosity that might then be able to you be used uh, to benefit others as well as well as as just the church. I, I think some of the advice that you were giving is is uh, is similar to what I often hear with regard to the use of endowments. You know, because I think so many churches are afraid that if if they have an endowment, it's going to depress their giving, and that does happen sometimes. I didn't think that it did until it happened in my own church. Um, uh, and so, I, yeah, I, I think your advice there is is very sound. Um, for churches that wanted to start thinking about pursuing um, some of these options toward more creative and sustainable funding sources, um, how would you recommend that they get started? Yeah, I recommend that you start in two ways. Uh, the first is that you really take the time to inventory the assets that God has entrusted to your congregation's mm -hmm. care. I often encourage congregations to start here, which feels a little odd to those of us who are theologically trained, because I think most times when people come to this conversation, they're feeling that resources are really tight and things are really scarce. And they're assuming that they have nothing that's been entrusted to their care. So taking that time to step back and a couple of categories that I encourage people to think about. 
Certainly you can think about financial or physical assets. Mm -hmm. I encourage you to think about those, but also think about skill assets. What are some of the skills in your community? Thinking about time assets, who in your community and congregation might have some time that they can give that may not come with a specific skill, but they have time that they can share. And then also network assets, which I would say is probably one of the most underutilized assets. Mm -hmm. Who is in your congregation's network? Who might you partner with? Because none of these congregations did this work alone. Partnerships were a key piece of the puzzle. And often congregations are reluctant uh, to create those relationships with other partnering organizations, which is does them a real disservice. So I'd encourage you to think about what are those assets and really inventory them and begin to think about what's unique about our particular context um, in comparison to maybe some other contexts around us or other stories that you're hearing. If you happen to read through my research, you might say, oh, well, that's that's a little different about us. So for instance, a congregation I know who is a part of our survey who is in Detroit, they had a lot of young men who were previously incarcerated who were not able to get traditional jobs, but had a lot of ideas for how they might be entrepreneurial and serve their mm -hmm. community. That was a unique asset that doesn't fall on paper in a church's budget. So right. how might you use that uh, to not only generate income, but also to just really meet this need in our community and serve um, these young men who are in need? So that's a key piece of the puzzle. And the other piece, which I really encourage congregations not to skip past, is doing the discernment work. How are you called to participate in what God is up to in your community? And I offer um, in the book that I will have coming out here in the next year. So I offer some steps for how we might do that. But just some things that I would share, taking that time to really listen to community members, um, not just asking them what they need, but listening to their hopes and their dreams for the community, asking who else you should talk to. Um, I know that Leading Ideas has offered so many great resources on that, and I would encourage them to check those out. Um, also, taking that time to to cultivate God language in your community. I would say for the people that I serve, particularly in mainline denominations in the ELCA, we're not used to talking about what God is up to in our community. And it takes time right. to learn that language and to, to take those steps. But this is often more about listening and then beginning to put our arms around what God is calling us to do. What is our piece of that unique mission? Um, and creating a mission statement is not the end of the story. That's just one thing that propels this journey of listening and discernment forward. Mm -hmm. As we begin to draw to a close, um, as you're describing these things, it, it does occur to me, since we focus a lot on leadership, that a lot of times, I think church leaders come into the ministry probably without really the skill set to think more entrepreneurially and, and to, you know, uh, create and change in some of these ways. So what, 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 what are some things that leaders can do to prepare themselves to, to, to um, be a bit more entrepreneurial and manage some of these kinds of things? The good news that I have for you leaders is that you already have the skill sets in place to do this work. The best thing that you can bring is your vision for what God is up to in the community and coaching and encouraging those in your community who'd want to participate in this work. 
No matter how small your congregation is, you likely have people who have never engaged in volunteering in your congregation's ministry because they never felt like they were the fit to be the greeter, to be the Sunday school teacher, to be the reader on Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. But they would love to be able to pick up their hammer and tools and be a handyman. My dad is one of those. Like He does not want to stand up in front of people and lead this way, but he would love to be put to work. There might also be entrepreneurs in your congregation who say, hey, I get all the business stuff. I can do that, but I need to know how this relates to ministry. So your job is to be that translator. And this can be really challenging for leaders because we're used to being the ones who lead the way and others follow us. And in this case, it's going to be a more collaborative work where we each bring our gifts. Yeah, that, that's a really helpful perspective on that. Uh, so before we finish, you did mention that this is going to be published. So can you tell us a bit about what's coming in that regard? Absolutely. We've got a lot of great work that we will be disseminating through Luther Seminary's Faith Lead site. Um, so we are soon to be publishing an ebook on these research findings, which I hope you all will have a chance to check out. We'll be talking about our interviews as well as our survey data there. And then soon we're hoping to roll this into an online course that you could take. So if this is something that sounds interesting to you, we hope you'll join us for one of those. And then after that, uh, sometime in 2024, there will be a book coming out through Fortress Press on this topic. Um, so I'd love to have you all learn more about what we've studied. And most of all, I'd love to hear your stories as you're engaging in this work. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Grace. Uh, this is such an important area. It's wonderful that you've really devoted some sustained uh, attention to it. Uh, I'm also really grateful for your enthusiasm uh, because I think this is such an exciting area and I hope that it will inspire uh, others uh, who are listening to begin to think about how this might apply in their situation as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anne. It was a pleasure to be with all of you. Thanks for joining us for Leading Ideas Talks. Please like and subscribe to this channel and click the bell icon to get updates for new videos.